Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm having a rough day. Are you? Why? It's uh, it's my son's last day at nursery today. He starts school next week. Oh, gosh. And I've just been sobbing. We, we said goodbye to his key worker earlier, and I did that thing where I couldn't speak. I, I was stifling tears so much that I couldn't get any words out, and I just had to sort of point to my eyes a little bit. I, do you know what I would love? I'd love to be more stoic. Oh, well, good for you. I know last time on the podcast we talked about me and my weepiness. I called myself pathetic. And then, then someone emailed in saying, like, a woman would never call herself yeah. pathetic for being in touch with her emotions. But I, I just want to be clear here. I, there's, there's being in touch with your emotions and then there's being too in touch with your emotions. And I think I'm, I'm too in touch. I think my emotions are like, Jesus, can't, can't he just give us a break? Can we, can we just pretend we're not in? We, we don't want him in touch with us quite this much. Yeah, well, I think it's important that you're in touch with your emotions. But if you bottle them up, it will be worse, don't you think? And, it, and it's, it shows you're a very... I'm sure there's a middle ground. I think you're, be, I think you're being too hard on yourself, actually. I, I do. I don't know. I don't know. How's your week been? The cycling is still, is still moving forward. My wife shamed me into getting rid of the electric bike that I'd hired and moving to a, a, a sort of Santander bike because she thought it would be, be better exercise for me. My, my worry is being able to sufficiently acknowledge a driver or, a, or, or signal you're turning left or right without falling off. Yes. So it tends to be rather curt, my signalling. Because it's, but I, I, but, but I, I felt it was more comfortable last weekend than it had been the weekend before. So it's sort of a work in, work in progress. I think you have to do a lot of work with your facial expressions, like a silent movie actor. 
Are you not so good at the sort of no hands wheelie situation? I, I haven't pulled a wheelie, and uh, I, I really get nervous about indicating with my arm. Oh, you do too. Well, that's good. I'm, I feel a little bit. That makes me feel a little bit better, actually. Yeah, I don't think I've, uh, I've I've nailed doing it elegantly yet. So we're both sort of at similar stages of bike progress. I think so. I think so. Um, here's here's something I wanted to ask you about. Have you seen the new spitting image puppets? No. Oh, they've got Michael Gove, uh, Dominic Raab, uh, Camilla, Charles. When when you hear of it, because you know it's coming yeah. back, we talked about it a while ago, do you feel you dodged a bullet by not currently being in a position where they're going to make a spitting image puppet of you? Or Definitely. No part of you would like a spitting image puppet. Well, if you'd like to get me one for my 51st birthday, that would be fine. But <laughs> but I don't want to be featured on the programme, no. I think I'm I'm very happy to be out of it. I know you're busy with your day job, but would you be available to do voices for them? Because you, you, you do a very good Gordon Brown. I'll take it under advice. I've gone all shy now. Your Blair isn't bad from memory. I mean, look, Jeff, you know. I mean, <laughs> look, come on here. I mean, I just don't think I need to be in spitting image, really. Uh, anyway, what, uh, what, let's what, move on. What do, you think, what do you think Gordon would have to say about that? It might involve the throwing of a phone. Right. <laughs> Um, right. Shall I say what we're talking about this week? Yes, let's, let's do it. Yeah. This week we're talking about child trust funds and baby bonds. Back in the mid-2000s, the Labour government gave all newborn children hundreds of pounds in child trust fund accounts they could access when they turned 18. This could be then topped up by family members and was seen as a way to spread wealth more widely across the population. The policy was later abolished by the coalition government, but at the start of September, the beneficiaries of these initial accounts begin turning 18. For the next decade, tens of thousands of young people each month will gain access to their child trust funds. At the same time, a very similar policy known as baby bonds is gaining traction in the US as a potential solution to the enormous racial wealth gap. We're going to be exploring both ideas and how a universal endowment for all young people could help tackle widening wealth inequality. We're talking to Gavin Kelly, who is one of the initial architects of the Child Trust Fund policy, about the story behind it and the lessons for today. Then we're going to be speaking to Kerry McWalter, who's turning 18 this week and only recently discovered she had a child trust fund. We'll be talking to her about her experience and what she plans to do with it. And finally, we're chatting to Naomi Zawadeh from the City University of New York. She's been researching the impact baby bonds could have on racial wealth inequality in the US. And we'll be asking her about what she's found. Have you got a reason to be cheerful, Jeff? I have. Do you know I'm obsessed with this one particular dish, chili paneer? I must have talked about it in the past. It's it's an Indo-Chinese right. dish. And ev- every time I see it on a menu, I have to try it. And there have been occasions where I've travelled an hour and a half to some place the other side of London just to try it when I've heard that somewhere does a, a, a good one. And like, I've got a mental map of where all the best versions of it are. And And for years... I've been trying to make a good version of it at home and I must have tried 20 different recipes and I've never succeeded and I'd pretty much given up until this week. So I tried one from this Instagram account that I've been following. Uh, It's called Sanjana Feasts and I don't really follow very many food accounts. They're not really my thing, but everything this woman makes looks incredible. She calls it Indian soul food. And I tried her chilli paneer recipe this week and it was perfect wow my, my quest is over it's so good wow i've made it three times will you make it for me one day absolutely yeah wow chili paneer at jeff's oh it's so good um what, what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful is definitely in the obscure category 
which is that somebody has directed my attention, and I promise you it wasn't me, um, <laughs> to the French Wikipedia account uh, of or the French Wikipedia entry for me. There's a French there's a French account. Right. And I'm really pleased about this French Wikipedia entry because it says that from the year in the years 1992 to 1996 I was in a band called Twisted Psyche. <laughs> Your secret is out. Well, no, in fact the person who showed this to me said, "Were you really in a band called Twisted Psyche?" And I said, "No, but please don't get rid of it <laughs> from Wikipedia." <laughs> I fear now somebody's going to go to the Wikipedia account if they haven't already uh, and get rid of it. But 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 there it was. Oh, congratulations! I look forward to your the Twisted Psyche reunion. This is reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Gavin Kelly, who is chair of the Resolution Foundation and the Living Wage Foundation. Uh, Gavin worked on child trust funds in government in the early 2000s. And it's a bit of a reunion because you and Ed worked together, Gavin. We did. Many moons ago, there was a lot less grey hair. Uh, (laughs) I can speak for Ed on that as well as myself. Um, Happy days. Long time ago. I mean, I think it's fair to say, Jeff, that Gavin is the godfather of child trust funds well yeah i mean that's very kind of you i think so well, if not the if not the father actually yeah maybe the father um i think sort of thomas Paine and thomas jefferson might have something to say about that but yeah in the kind of modern the modern guys thomas Paine, thomas jefferson and gavin kelly <laughs> that sounds like a good that sounds like a good trio yeah, to I'll, me. I'll, t- I'll take that i've never quite heard that trio before so i'll take that <laughs> Well, well, tell us about them. Can you start by explaining to us exactly what the child trust funds are or were and, and also why we're talking about them again now? Sure. So, I mean, it's a sort of simple idea, quite an idealistic idea in a way, which was that when every child is born, the state would put some resource, some money in an account in that, in that baby's name uh, and that that account would then grow over time. The state would top it up at age seven. Parents or grandparents could put a certain amount in each year up to a limit. And then the, the young adults, as they would become, would get access to that account at age 18. So that was the kind of basic idea. It was a mini trust fund for every child in the country. Uh, this has never happened before. Just the first thing to say, like no other country. People have tried little mini versions of it and there's been some pilots. No country has done this at a nationwide sort of level. So the UK um, has undertaken, if you like, a big natural experiment in a way. Um, so that this was something, an idea which in its modern form, uh, we kind of kicked around just before the millennium, sort of late 90s, around the year 2000, came into government and discussed it, worked with people like Ed and all sorts of other people. And the reason we're talking about it now is because uh, children who were babies who were born in September 2002 um, are the first people at age 18, and you can, you can tell that means September 2020, which is where we are now, that are the first year people to get access to these funds. So this month, the first cohort of child trust fund adults, young adults, get access to the loot, basically. And that is why... Um, that's why they, you, it, we've been talking about them quite a bit this last month. And it makes some of yeah. us feel incredibly old because... I was about to say, I was about to ask Gavin, yeah. how, how old does that make you feel? Well, put it this way, when we were kicking the idea around, 
I mean, it just felt like the idea, you know, the idea of when these would come to fruition, when these things would come of age, felt like so far in the distance. Um, and it was, I couldn't really imagine my future self, and, uh, and yet here I am. Tell us a bit more about that kicking it around. How, how difficult was it to get New Labour to adopt this policy? Did it seem outlandish at the time? What, what's your story of, of uh, wanting to develop it? Were you a Thomas Paine fan? What's, what, what's, the, what's the story? I liked all that history. Um, and I should say that there were other people around at that time, people like Professor Julian Legrand at the LSE, he'd written about it as well. So there were, there were a few people around sort of developing this kind of thinking. Um, and there were people in the States that we knew who were trialling this sort of thing at a local level in different states in America. So there was a bit of a kind of debate about it. It was known in government. Um, I wrote a report proposing something very like like the Child Trust Fund. And, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting looking back at it. I mean, it part, it got, it got momentum in government because David Blunkett actually at the start seized it and became a champion very early on. So he had, you know, and he, you know when he put his mind to something, he was quite a strong uh, force for change. I think looking back, it's sort of striking how both it got a lot of momentum within the government, um, in part because people, different people, different types of people projected different hopes onto it. So some people saw it as a way of trying to get into wealth inequality. That's probably, my guess is that's where sort of like Ed was probably coming from. Other people saw it as a kind of long-term way of thinking about building up a savings habit. Uh, amongst people who weren't saving so much. Some people were just more focused, you know, on the very big issue, which we still have in spades today, but it's just a large chunk of the country who've got nothing behind them at all, nothing to fall back on a rainy day. And that's just a really awful way to live your life. So they were quite focused on just like, how do we secure a minimum, if you like, kind of bedrock of financial support, if you like. So there were sort of different reasons um, that people got behind it in government. Um, there were plenty of people uh, on the left who were, I would say, sceptical at best, and they kind of saw it potentially as a threat to spending on benefits and income, if you like, and basically every pound spent on something else is a pound that isn't spent on lifting the level of benefits, and why isn't that what we're talking about? And of course, that was really important, but at that very time we were talking about the Child Trust Fund, there was like an unprecedented amount of money going to things like tax credits. So there was, you know, I thought there was an answer to all that stuff. And then there were just lots of kind of, I suppose, quite mainstream economists who were just like, what are you talking about? Like, wealth is just what's left over from your income. The only thing that matters is income. Wealth isn't a kind of interesting unit of analysis. Um, and I think that's sort of been shown, history has shown that to be a kind of washed up view of the world, really, and that wealth in its own right really matters as well as income. But it kind of, it did also cut across political, the traditional political lines. I remember when we launched it in government. The Guardian and The Sun were the biggest supporters in the media. And The Telegraph and The Independent, as it was, were the kind of had a fairly similar line against it. So it, it definitely it didn't fit neat completely. I mean, it was broadly more supported on the left and broadly more opposed on the right. But it didn't fit that completely neatly into those boxes. Can I just ask you a historical question, Gav, which is which I don't which I don't kind of fully remember. This was much more a Blair thing than a Brown thing. I mean, although Gordon wasn't against it, uh, not ultimately anyway, um, uh, and maybe not even initially. What was it, do you think, that made Tony Blair, what was it that attracted him? I mean, just it's just an interesting historical question, because Gordon's big thing was the tax credits and all of that, the immediate anti-poverty measures. What do you think was it that most attracted Tony Blair in your memory to it? 
I think there was a sort of basic story which chimed, and that with with with, with uh, and I remember I remember meetings with with uh, Tony Blair about it, and, and that basic story was: look, there are lots of people who've got choice on their side in life as young adults, and and I think lots of middle class parents quite possibly him, could sort of see how he was thinking about, you know, his kids and lots, lots of people do and they have a bit of, mo- bit of money put aside for them. And he kind of realised and was shown the data on quite how many families, that, you know, their, their kids would never be in that position and there would never be anything put behind them. So I think the kind of the narrative of extending to a large chunk of the country what a lot of middle-class families would take for granted struck a chord. The other thing which actually, rather than sort of left, right and so on, the thing that we actually went round and round and kind of really became problematic and quite um, heated, I don't know if Ed remembers this, in this whole discussion, wasn't so much sort of traditional left, right stuff, so much as a kind of like, should you restrict what this money gets spent on when the kids, when the young people come of age, or should it be a kind of liberal, they'll spend it on what they spend it on? And that became really... That was the thing that took much more time and there were really big divisions on um, within government. And you succeeded in making it, you were for making it uh, sort of totally flexible and you succeeded in that. Yes. Part of it was a bit, it was a bit philosophical, but for me it was also, I got really persuaded, uh, stroke worn down by the arguments about, are you really going to spend all this money trying to police this thing? The actual pragmatic arguments about what you would have to create to try and regulate the sort of spending. And it, it, it sounds very simple, like, you know, people would say, well, it's obvious you should have spent it on, like, I don't know, a deposit for a house, putting it in your pension, or spending it on edu- some sort of training or education. But actually, lots of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, people would, you know, anyone who knows, say, lots of parts of the country, the best thing that someone could do would actually be mobile, have a car, or whatever it is. So as soon as you start opening the door to those sorts of things, it was like, how on earth are you going to kind of regulate this thing? And in, in, the, in the end... That argument went out. But that was actually much more heated than anything else. And how close was the version you proposed to the version that ended up being implemented and passed? It was a kind of classic IPPR policy report, which we put out. And it proposed something for kids, which would grow from from when they were born um, to they were 18. I think we called it an opportunity fund for children. And then we proposed an adult a separate policy, but kind of twinned with it, which was matched incentives. So you put a pound in and the state puts a pound in for targeted at low-income adults. So there was a, a kids thing and an adult thing. And the government did actually introduce, alongside the Child Trust Fund, a, a targeted savings support scheme for low-income adults uh, as well. So it was pretty similar. The, the sums were smaller. So the government, it was, it was, it was, it was much more modest, significantly more modest. Um, but it, it was pretty similar. And, and, and Gav, here we are, uh, 18 years on, sorry to remind you of that. Is the idea behind child trust funds still relevant to the world we're in today, more relevant maybe? I think it's massively relevant. And uh, in some ways, we've got the same issues that we did then. And in some ways, I think we've got new and issues which make it more relevant. So if you think the overall distribution of wealth in the country matters politically and economically, then you know, we've got just as much of a problem as we did back then. We have, we have hugely, and I'm sure you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, we have very uneven distribution of wealth in this country, much more so than the distribution of income. But roughly speaking, the top 10% in terms of wealth own about half of all the net wealth in the country. Uh, so that's still there. We still have a very large chunk of people with nothing behind them, and that really worries me and I think I think if anything the evidence about the damage that causes families and individuals has got stronger 
I think the kind of intergenerational aspect of this issue has, has grown over the last 20 years in the sense that the linkage between the likelihood that you as a young adult will ever be able to own a property and your parents' wealth position, that's got stronger since we came out with this policy. So that's more of an issue. And just generally speaking, more of the country's wealth is held by the older generation than, than you know, as a proportion of the total than used to be the case. And I think... I mean, just to sort of step right back for a second, I mean, part of this, part of the underlying, I guess, impulse behind it was if you want capitalism to be legitimate and seen as a kind of decent way of running things, then everybody has to have access to a bit of capital, to put it really simply. And I think the basic idea that the rules of the game are not set up fairly to give everybody a chance. I mean, if that was an issue in 1999, my God, I don't think there's much, I don't think we can say in 2020, well, that's, we've sort of dealt with that one. So I think the kind of basic sort of like desire, this doesn't take you to how, you know, precisely how you design a child trust fund or anything like that, but the basic, what do we need to do to make this system set up that so people feel they've got a material stake in it and that it's not completely rigged against them, that question burns more brightly, I would say, today than it probably did 20 years ago. Well, let's talk about scale, Gavin, of this. Um, it was abolished by the coalition uh, government, which obviously, I think it made a difference to the people who were no longer getting it. They were born and no longer getting it, but also it sort of ended any additional payments that might have been that might have been made. What talk to us about? I mean, talk to us more generally about if you could go back, what would you do differently? You know, how big does the scale need to do to make a difference? Does a small amount of wealth make a difference? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I have two kind of slightly contradictory thoughts on that. One is some people say, well, what's the point in doing something which might only give someone a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds or whatever it is? I've never heard a person without much money make that point. Never. I only ever hear people who've got comfortable bank accounts make that point. So the first thing to say, you know, that really used to get under my skin. Like what, you know, if it's not going to be 20k, what is the point? It's like, have you gone out and met? You know, it's just so anyway, there's that basic point, which is let's keep it real about how many people have nothing to fall back on. How many people do have nothing to fall back on? Well, in today's money, um, so it's it, we've got well, it's, it's well over a quarter getting on for a third have under 500 pounds in the household. Um, and if you got to a thousand pounds, there's a threshold, it's, it's a lot higher than that. So, um, you know, there's a large chunk of the country we've literally just like hand-to-mouth type thing. So I think on the one hand, some people would be surprised by the difference that what sounds like relatively modest sums can make. So I think that's true. And I think to come onto some, some of the evidence, if you like, and we looked, we had versions of this evidence at the end of the 90s that were used in designing the policy, and that evidence has been redone uh, and improved in the period since. And that evidence does show, what this evidence tries to do is look at the, it tries to pinpoint the difference that having some financial wealth when you're around 20 can make on where you get to in life, basically, both in terms of how much money you go on to earn, but also your, your physical and mental health and various other things. And that evidence shows that a relatively modest sum, the sorts of, the sorts of amounts that we're talking about in a child trust fund, of maybe like £1,000 or so, can make a very material difference, as best we can understand, to where you get to in terms of social outcomes. So I think that stuff tells you that even relatively modest, I don't mean like nugatory, but relatively modest sums can make a difference. That, same, that evidence also shows that more capital makes a bigger difference. I think we were too modest. 
I think part of the modesty comes from the fact that the, most people, everyone was going to get topped up at age seven and nearly all those, eight, those seven-year-olds didn't get the money because it was abolished. A few of them did, but most of them didn't. But actually, I think it was, it was just too modest overall. And to be honest, it was a cheap stepping back in the great scheme of things. It didn't cost that much. So I think... How much did, how much did it cost? Probably? I mean, from memory, I think when it was abolished, it was half a, it was half a billion a year. Right. Ish. I mean, that, it, I, it, was, it was roughly half a billion a year. Smaller Which is small in the scheme. And if I was doing it again, I think I would want to be much more ambitious. Um, which doesn't mean to say £50,000 for every, you know, but I would, I would want it to be more significant. Um, I think another point, you asked about lessons, Ed, I think, and I say, I'd make a couple of other points. One is um, that if you want to do long-term policy, and this is the, this is the ultimate long-term policy, we were looking 18 years ahead, you have to do sort of long-term politics alongside it. And we didn't, I think, and that was a shortcoming. So, you know, there was no... And what do I mean by that? Well, on the one... You know, one version of long-term politics is you try and build a consensus and you build a process and you do what we did in the Labour government about pensions through Returner Review, which was very consensual, talked to the other parties, and has and that policy change that the Taylor proposed has lived through the coalition government, unlike the Child Trust Fund, and is a big part of a social policy system today. Um, so that's one version of it. Another version of it is you embed it by making sure that you have real existing winners and it's, it just you make it much harder to take it away. And in that sense, we were kind of nobly long-termist in that we did look to an 18-year time horizon, but possibly quite sort of democratically naive in that we didn't create people with cash in their hands from this policy whose little brother or little sister wasn't going to get cash in their hands if it was taken away. That is a really good point, isn't it? Because rather than this, I mean, sorry to sort of say this now, but should have said it at the time, but rather than this laborious process of people having to wait 18 years, presumably you could have just given it to the 18-year-olds. There had to be a sort of motivational thing going on, wasn't there, about save, savings and all of that? There was, so there was a view that it, there was a big, there was a view from, from many people that there was a big benefit to sort of the pro, growing up knowing that you would have a stake and that that was and it didn't just fall out the sky it was part of your inheritance if you like your social inheritance that you'd get this uh and i think we were quite i think i was um semi-persuaded of all that but it is the case looking back that um you know it was a very long gestation and people lose elections and other governments make choices and i think i mean put it this way just crudely if this policy had been designed in 2005 or after uh, and this has nothing to do with who was like, whether it was Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, but there was a sense of mortality, political mortality by then, in a way that possibly hubristically, I don't think there was in 2000. Um, I think it might have been designed differently. But, but, but do you think it was also the case that the, and I speak as a sort of politician obviously here, that it only coming to fruition in 18 years' time meant there weren't going to be lots of tabloid stories about people going off to the Bahamas? Um, with their money, whereas if you'd said it's all, you know, from you know to January first, two thousand and one, every eighteen-year-old's going to get, everyone turning eighteen is going to get two thousand quid. It would have been much. You'd have been much more tested. On we would have. I don't think that. I mean, in truth, I don't think that's why um, it was eighteen years. Although I would just can I, and this is with doing the hindsight thing here. I do think, and this is just my finger in the air, really, but I do think it feels very different. This, that debate today compared to what we thought it would feel like when we were having this in, in, around 2000. So when, you know, at this month, when the, 18, the first 18-year-olds 
get their, can get their hands on their accounts. Almost none of the coverage across the media has been shock horror, who's going to go and do, you know, something dreadful with it. I think the views about how young people live their lives and spend their money have changed somewhat, in part because young people have, through all sorts of things we've learned, we have more visibility of young people just act kind of pretty responsibly about most things most of the time. And of course there will be some exceptions and of course they'll get some media coverage. But that feels less of a kind of first order fear about this sort of thing than it did back then. That's my hunch. And indeed, I saw, I mean, it's funny, I saw the Child Trust Fund, which was abolished by the coalition. I mean, it wasn't many years later, and I really, I mean, really not many years later, that I saw the Lib Dems saying what we really need is a kind of universal financial endowment for 18-year-olds. So I think these things, I mean, I'm being slightly facetious there, but I'm not really, I am making a more serious point, which is, I think this has legs. I'm not saying the Child Trust Fund precisely is going to come back, but we see this debate in the US, which you may hear about, where there's a baby bonds idea, in some, the idea, you know, the basic notion that if you live in a capitalist society, it's important that people have access to capital and it's a beneficial thing if there is broad-based access to a financial stake in that society. That is a powerful idea through our history and I don't think it's going to fizzle out in the year 2020. I think it's got real purchase still. Okay, Gavin Kelly, father, godfather, um, uncle... Uh, of the uh, Child Trust Fund. Thanks so much for joining us. I have to, I I can't let you go without saying that when I mentioned this morning, you know, what I was doing today and I said, oh, I'm doing this show and my kids were like, I was much excited and they were like, what is this? And uh, this is a bit mean, Ed, I'm sorry for saying this, but my partner said, and I've never, I'm not, it's terrible, she listens, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't listen, but she said, uh, she went, oh, that bloke Jeff's quite good. Um, (laughs) And then my, and then one of my youngest went, hang on, does that mean you get to speak to Ed from Strictly. And I was like, and I was, <laughs> which I, yes, anyway, so I thought I'd show them. The answer is no. The, the answer is no. I know. I told him. He was like, oh, I see. All right, okay. Disappointing. Yes, I'm Thanks, sorry, Kevin. but it was too good not to share. We're joined now by Kerry McWalter, who turns 18 this week and therefore will gain access to her child uh, trust fund. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, tell us the story of how you found out about having a child trust fund. So it was a few months back and I was just going through social media. It was kind of start at the start of lockdown. Um, and I was scrolling through social media and an advert came up about a child trust fund and I'd be eligible if you're born after September 1st, 2002 you'd be eligible up to a grand. So I kind of looked into it and then that's when I found out I had one. And what was your reaction? And and, and have your friends also discovered they have them? Well, my reaction was quite shocked. Like it was quite a surprise to me. Um, It was a really good thing to kind of boost how I felt during lockdown. Um, One of my friends is a a couple of months after me. So she's now found out she's got one as well. That's good. So you're spreading you're spreading the word. And how much is, if I may ask, how much is in your child trust fund? I think it's around fourteen hundred at the moment. Right, around fourteen hundred pounds. And then the sort of big, if you like, the sort of uh, fourteen hundred pound question: what 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 do you think you're gonna what are you gonna do with the money? Um, so I've got um, a holiday booked with my mum next summer. Hopefully, I still go. Um, and I'm just going to be paying my half of that. Will it? You, you said it had boosted your morale during lockdown. Do you think it? I mean, do you think it will make a sort of significant difference to you? Yeah, 
I'm currently part-time working, so I'm only on like a small wage kind of thing. So obviously this money is going to really help me kind of get bearings of stuff that I need to buy kind of thing. Yeah, and you're also going to be studying, is that right? It might help you with your studying, is that right? Yeah, so I'm doing an introduction to pharmacy studies just now at Edinburgh College. Right, and is, will this money help you with those studies? Yeah, kind of like travel and stuff because it's like a couple of buses away from mine. So it gives you a sort of a, a kind of a kind of set of savings which you just wouldn't otherwise have had, presumably. Yeah. And now these child trust funds were sort of introduced, obviously, eighteen years ago, uh, um, because you're just turning eighteen. Um, they they um, the government stopped creating new child trust funds about a decade ago. I mean. What, given your experience, but this is what we're discussing today, what 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 do you think about them? You know, do you think that they've got a role? Do you think they should be brought back? What's your what's your thoughts? I think they should be like brought back, um, as it gives like more young people an opportunity to get the money that I'm getting, kind of thing. It just kind of gives people like a gist of what adult life kind of entails, kind of starting off with this money and then gives you experience money handling kind of thing that's interesting that's interesting and what are your some of your friends do you know what your friends like the one who's going to be 18 in two months what are they thinking about doing doing with it um i think she's putting most of it into savings she currently lives by herself just now um so she's got her own place so she's going to i think she's going to revamp some stuff in her house sounds good Kerry, for other people who are turning 18 who, who who may not know that they've got a child trust fund, what, what do they need to do? Um, I would kind of go on to the Share Foundation account um, website and look into child trust funds from there or go on to the government website and just kind of have a look to see if they're eligible kind of thing. Well, listen, Kerry, very, very happy birthday for this coming week. Thank you. I'm really glad that you um, uh, found out about your your child trust fund, and 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 thank you so much for joining us. It's not bother. Thank, thank you. Now to talk to us about the idea of baby bonds in the US, we have Naomi Zoaday, who is assistant professor at City University of New York and a research fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, Naomi, hello. Thank you for joining us. Um, hi. Hi. I, I wondered if we could start by just trying to get an overall picture of the the scale of wealth inequality in the states you know uh, particularly in relation to the racial wealth gap so i think that there is kind of two problems there is a extreme concentration of wealth in very few hands who happen to be white kind of a white billionaire class um and then there is along the rest of the distribution, like at the median, the experience of the everyday white American and the everyday black American are also very far apart. So the median black household has like $17,000 of net worth that includes home equity. Uh, and the median white household has like 170000 So it's a factor of 10. And, you know, that represents a big difference in just the experience of people's lives, what kinds of homes and neighborhoods and everything that they end up having access to and and presumably you know wealth being accumulated over generations is a huge factor in that and and can you talk to us about that how how that is exacerbated in the racial wealth gap so yeah 
a lot of wealth is intergenerationally transferred. And that happens really all throughout the life course. You can see a strong intergenerational correlation in wealth. So it's not just the inheritance. It's help with tuition. It's help with the down payment. It's really helped throughout the life. Um, and so wealth, you know, I mean, it's something different from income where income, you know, it comes in every month. Wealth is something large and African-Americans in the United States just haven't had very many generations to build up wealth, to have something to be able to transfer between generations. Uh, the big, you know, wealth generating public policies in the United States in the 20th century, something like, um, you know, the GI Bill, they explicitly excluded, you know, black homeowners or potential aspiring homeowners from government backed mortgages. And, and so, and a lot of household wealth is held in home equity. So it, the program explicitly excluded black people. And also they just haven't had very many chances to do it. So, so talk to us about the idea of baby bonds then. What are they and in what ways could they be a solution to wealth inequality? So baby bonds is conceived of as basically a universal trust fund account. So everybody would be a trust fund recipient, um, but the money would be put in by the federal government and it would go in when you were born, but you can't touch it until you become a young adult. And the amount that they would put in, so everyone would get something, but the least wealthy, their kids would get the most up to $50,000 and, or as little as $500. And it, you know, it would grow perhaps on your behalf in an account until you become a young adult and you can, you know, gain ownership over it. And then you can use that money as a kind of building block for your, for the rest of your adulthood. It would, you know, doing it based on the parent's wealth as opposed to the parent's income actually has a much bigger racial impact because, you know, even at the same level of income, black households have a lot less wealth because of the, you know, these legacies and this historical generational aspect to wealth. So designing it specifically around wealth is meant to be intentionally anti-racist. And how much of an impact, Naomi, uh, could government have on this? What, what, what have you found in your research on the impact they could have on the racial wealth gap and how much would they have to put in to achieve it? remarkably little that they would have to put in to achieve it. And I think that a lot of that functions around the fact that you give it to every newborn when they're born, the year that they're born, uh, which is only about $4 million a year in the United States. So at, at a total cost of around $80 billion, that's what I studied, $80 billion, similar to the, um, the SNAP program, it's like nutrition assistance for low-income households. It's a similar size in the budget, um, $80 billion. And what they could do, the impact that it would have on the wealth of young adult households would, could be really massive. Um, today, the median young black adult household has like $3,000 um, versus the median white young adult household has around 46000 So anyway, it's a factor of 15.9 uh, is the difference. With baby bonds, even just at $80 billion a year, it could go down to a factor of 1.4 which is a huge change from a factor of 16. But, you know, how much that's going to hold over the life course is still yet to be seen. If the, you know, people who already have access to wealth, they get that money, they might invest it in different ways. Versus people who don't have access to wealth, they might actually need to consume it. So whether that's going to kind of, you know, remain 
and hold the, that egalitarian effect of the policy, whether that, you know, you'll continue to see that all the way into their retirement, for example, is not clear. But at least in terms of the, the wealth that the young adult would have during those crucial early years, it could actually have a really major impact. To, to what extent are baby bonds throwing money at a problem when actually the, the, there are lots of surrounding issues that, that need looking at? In, in other words, how much would uh, baby bonds really work in tandem with other policy areas? I think that it can't be alone. It can't be a standalone policy. We would need, you know, access to, first of all, a- adequate, spacious, clean, quality housing that doesn't cost too much money. Um, we would need access to affordable health care. Otherwise, you know, the money would just be squandered, like not squandered, but used very wisely, but consumed immediately. Um, it would, in, in tandem with those things, it would actually make those things even more, you know, worthwhile because to give people wealth means that they can develop, you know, their own institutions, cultural or community or what have you. So if you have your basic needs taken care of, and then you get a lump sum of money to build for the future, uh, together, those things could be really powerful for like building a generation of people with hope. New Jersey's governor has announced a plan to introduce baby bonds. Talk to us, uh, if if you will, about this proposal, and whether you think it's a step in the right direction or ambitious enough. It is a step in the right direction, but I definitely think it is not ambitious enough. They're only giving $1,000 is my understanding. Um, you know, $1,000, if you become a young adult and you get $1,000, that is a, about one credit hour uh, of tuition at a private university. So it's not going to do much to change the lives of young people. So yeah, tuition, the fact that college tuition is so expensive is probably something that needs its own independent legislation. But $1,000, regardless, whatever problem you're trying to throw $1,000, it'll just eat it up and, and, you know, you'll be left with the same problem. I think it's nowhere near ambitious enough. But the thing is that, you know, it's not a bad program. Um, I think it's similar to the size of the UK. Yes, yeah, well. it's, a, it's a similar magnitude. Now, we've been talking about this sort of idea and the uh, impact it can have. What do you think are the sort of conditions for it to est- attract political support in the united states do you think it can attract political support in the u.s what do you think are the obstacles and and how might they be overcome i think that it's surprisingly not that difficult so the main problem is just the general anti-government i think sentiment it's different from something like the struggle for to get single-payer health care in the united states because there are like uh there's a heavily concentrated opposition that's like an existential problem for them, insurance companies, you know, but giving people money, except for the fact that it has to come from somewhere. So we'll have to tax somebody to get it. Uh, other than that, there's nobody really directly being harmed. So I actually think it's kind of a low bar, like it's, ver- it's low hanging fruit. Naomi, we have a, th- a thing on the podcast, uh, which we uh, return to from time to time. It's, it's, it's a utopian vision of the future. I'm a benign dictator in this. It's called the Jeffocracy. If, if I was to, uh, to give you carte blanche and say, Naomi, go ahead, put together the baby bond scheme of your dreams, what, what would that look like? At birth, they're getting... Um like 50, up to 50,000, that sliding fee scale. Also, anytime somebody immigrates, a child immigrates to the United States, 
they would become eligible for it in my ideal world. Uh, and then it would be complemented with, you know, money for parents to be able to use throughout the child's life course so they wouldn't have to feel the pain of waiting. You've got the job. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Naomi Zoaday, we're on board. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. So what did you think? Well, I like it. I, I like anything which sort of helps solve this head start problem that people have with wealth. Yeah. Do you remember me telling you years ago that I had a friend who had an idea for um, 0% income tax, 100% inheritance tax? Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, which, uh, you know, is outlandish. But um, I guess the, uh, uh, Naomi's version um, had a touch of that to it in that it, it makes the the start you have in life much more of an even level playing field. I think, I mean, the interesting thing is that if you think about debates about inequality, they spend a lot of time on income for totally understandable reasons. But wealth inequality, I think, is twice as bad as income, twice the scale of income inequality, at least in the UK. Um, and I think what's good about this is it directs us to that question and the fact that so many people have just no savings at all to fall back on. And it obviously, from what Gavin said, does make a difference if people have this foundation earlier in life. And, you know, more security, th those kind of foundations do make a big difference. I think there's the sort of the two issues that really struck me in the conversations are all of the conversations really sort of scale and sort of kind of the kind of moment at which it gets paid. I mean, scale, Naomi is, is thinking much bigger than the sort of thousand dollars, thousand pounds. I think Gavin was thinking that the scale was too unambitious. And then related to that, this issue of how easily it was abolished in the UK because there hadn't been a sort of constituency built up for it. It just took too long to come into to force somehow. And I'm quite struck about this issue of when it gets paid that the Labour government didn't really... I don't remember that I, I was sort of peripherally involved in it, but I don't remember the Labour government thinking, well, let's pay it when people are 18. And I actually do think that was because of a worry about... It's one thing if it's 18 years away, but it's another if you sort of just do it now... And I'm quite struck that that is being reproduced in the American example. I think there are, I think there are some lessons there. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If you've got ideas for uh, subjects that we should be tackling in future episodes, or if you've got thoughts on this week's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us via the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This one comes from Sophie Thomas, who says, got a couple of ideas for future podcasts thinking of the Green New Deal. Number one, gorilla gardening stroke incredible edible. Community gardening, growing of fruit and vegetables in public spaces. Are you a fan of that, Ed? Definitely. I was out and about at the weekend and I saw some uh, blackberries on a bush and just helped myself and it and it felt good. Um, more of that kind of thing, please. Definitely. Uh, this one as well from Sophie who says, tiny home living, building homes sustainably and differently, small community living like the Hedgehog Project in Brighton. I believe there is something in the west of Scotland as well. I don't know much about this, but I like the sound of a hedgehog project. I think broadly speaking, we're very much pro-hedgehog on this podcast. We are. Did I t- we, we had that email, didn't we, about the black bean soup? The lady who unfroze her black bean soup and it did for one of the hedgehogs. So yes, yes. We've got a slight debt to the hedgehog community to make up. Yes. Uh, this one comes from Nick. It's entitled Shorter Working August Success. Hi, guys. I thought I'd get in touch with you as my company allowed me to trial a Shorter Working August for my team, allowing people to work 80% of their contracted hours to review what the impact will be on output. We managed to achieve more in August than we had in the previous three months. And our company decided to allow us to continue with this into September to see if we can keep it up. A happy end to summer. What is a shame is at present they are not happy to share anything publicly for fears that our customers may react poorly to this. As in other parts of the business, we have backlogs of work, not in my team, and there is talk of increasing resourcing. So this message would contradict that. But I thought I would get in touch with you to share some cheerful news with the world without mentioning our company name. It works! Exclamation mark. All the best, Nick. That's great. It's it's it feels like the current period should give us loads of good data definitely on 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 working from home and just the changing nature of the workplace definitely although you you wonder how much the sort of awful economic hit of the pandemic will be used against that if you know what i mean yeah yeah exactly but uh you know but potentially there's some some good co- come out good, co- come good out data yeah yeah uh, Karen Murphy says, hello, I wondered if you could interview the philosopher Michael Sandel. He has a new book out on the failings of the meritocracy, which I think urgently need to be discussed by the left, particularly in uh, relation to Labour's two divisions. I think it's key. Please read and get him on to discuss. Please, please, please. Well, well she it, said, Ed, she's pleading with you. Well, it's funny she, she should say that, isn't it? Because um, we uh, indeed have just interviewed Michael Sandel for a future episode. So watch this space. Mm. And it was a really great conversation, wasn't it? 
Yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's got the brain the size of many planets, but um, but also uh, great sort of values as well. And um, so it, forthcoming. Yeah, watch this space. Coming soon. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. We are. Oh, um, I need to tell you something. Go on. I was mentioning my son before. My son has a renewed interest in you. If you remember, he went through a phase. Yes. When you were coming over and recording the podcast a lot when he was when he was a bit younger. More Ed. Very excited if he he ever saw you on the TV. More Ed. More Ed. More Ed. And he's lost interest in you generally more recently. But then I mentioned that you were a fan of the Octonauts, and as soon as I told him this, he was very interested again and instantly asked me to text you to find out what your favourite colour was. And I said... Red. Which went down very well with him, because his is dark blue and he doesn't like it if anybody else's favourite colour is dark blue. That's that's a lucky break. Yeah, he's very possessive. You don't think he might become a Tory then? (laughs) (laughs) That was a joke to all our Conservative (laughs) listeners. Um, So, shall I thank our guests? Yes. Gavin Kelly, Kerry Walter, Naomi Zaude. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Zoe Gelber, Fanula DC, and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 